On today's episode, we have Daniel Parham joining us. Daniel is a friend of mine, and we get into talking about friendship um, and what that looks like cross-culturally, what that looks like in the different stages of our life, and ultimately, how the church should be doing friendship moving forward into this next decade of life that we find ourselves in. So let's dive on in. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm sitting here with Daniel, and we're going to be talking about friendship, male friendship, cross-cultural friendship, um, stages of friendship, life friendship, uh, a lot of different aspects of friendship. Um, and so I'm excited for you guys to hear about this. Um, it's a very important topic for us, especially today, um, where most of our friendship is done online. Um, and just how do we do this? Um, how do we do friendship in the 21st century? Um, but before we get into that, Daniel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? What kind of what's your story? Uh, brief overview. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in Southern California, sunny Southern California. <laughs> Been here in the majority of my life. I spent a couple years in college uh, in the Deep South and uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and decided I need to get back as quickly as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of forged my journey in higher education, coming back here. Uh, and really, that's kind of where the story of, I think, how I've embodied friendship started um, here at Biola and, and now almost 10 years out from Biola mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as a student, but still here uh, working mm-hmm. in student success. Yeah. Well, excited to get into some of those stories. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about friendship. Um, and I guess a question before we even dive into a lot of the nitty gritty is what this looks like is why do you think it's important that we even talk about friendship um, today? Like, isn't friendship just something everyone already knows? Like we kind of just friendship just happens. Um, yeah. Why is it important? Maybe you think that we talk about it today? Well, I think I think there I think there is an elusive definition of what friendship is, you know, um, you know, I mean, I, I was the first first year of college students who had Facebook. right? <laughs> and uh, I remember Facebook kind of being this like weird blue and white. Yeah. Not my space type of system mm-hmm. where somehow you made a connection with a person and it forged a friendship, right? And so you got to see their pictures. <laughs> yep. and you got to see where they went, and you made a mm-hmm. statement. Daniel Parham back then, Daniel Parham is. And then you, <laughs> you, you made this, like, huge statement. So I have these old statements. Daniel Parham is hungry. Daniel Ooh. Parham goes to school. Daniel Parham likes the sun. All right? And, and somehow there was this person on the other end that would see that, and we'd have this joint connection. And from yep. that, we've yep. seen... Uh, other platforms develop in, in mm-hmm. the sense of that somehow intrinsically we're involved in someone's life uh, through a platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for my generation and the generation following me, there's this uh, definition of friendship that is mm-hmm. can can be distant, uh, can be completely virtual mm-hmm. and doesn't necessarily have to dive into the deepest depths of what that human being is beyond yeah. what they display themselves to be. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's one definition, right? Mm-hmm. The other definition I would say of friendship is one that I kind of see that happens in first Samuel, right? It's this kind of knitting together, uh, like this Jonathan and David situation, this knitting together of one another's souls. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and from that, there's this revealing aspect uh, of who a person is uh, mm-hmm. in the way in God's, God intrinsically ties them to another person, right? Yeah. And that it can't be defined by pictures or, or posts or mm-hmm. rather I have a great Likert scale concerning you, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. those, are, those are kind of the things that I was thinking. Well, it's interesting even thinking of social media, friendship has become a button. Like yeah. you, yeah. I click Absolutely. friend. <laughs> right. right. So we, I don't think we think even of what that is doing subconsciously to our idea of friendship mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. – friendship means clicking a button and now we're friends like it or if it's instagram you can click a follow um or if i'm private i have to still accept the follow so there's reciprocation but that's the that's the gist of what friendship virtually all it takes is to enter into friendship is just a click of a button Mm -hmm. like oh Mm -hmm. i know that person and so this isn't to brag but i have like 2300 friends on facebook but like in terms of friendship probably 200 of them I'd maybe consider friends yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. Um, and like close friends like 50 you must be an extrovert yeah <laughs> I've been an extrovert I've been a different if you lived in a few different cities and <laughs> I've been around the block uh, but yeah that's that's true yeah. um, but I mean that's so think about it it's like I have 2,000 plus friends but I really don't but if I believe that like wow I have all these followers right. or I have all these people who are liking my tweets right. or right. favoring my photos there's almost this mirage of that's what friendship is, um, but maybe we can dive in a little, little bit more of what are some of the stereotypes 
um, that you think today of what friendship can truly be, maybe outside of the digital world? What is like human to human, face to face? What are maybe some of the false stereotypes uh, of what we've believed in culture that friendship is supposed to be? Yeah, I think um, an aspect of friendship that I think has been stereotyped is that friendship always has to be surrounded uh, um, around commonality right hmm. uh so hmm. uh we both play a sport together which couldn't be the entry point to a friendship or uh for instance we both like playing video games or mm-hmm. we we are both uh highly intellectual and we're able to mm-hmm. dialogue in in the deepest things of what we consider our deepest concerns of life right so there's these points of commonality but friendship does not sustain solely from those things mm-hmm. uh, as those things fade away um, so a friendship can fade away. So I think a lot of times yeah. when we say friendship, like, oh, we go to these things together. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. or we listen to the same music. Mm-hmm. Or or we dress alike. Yeah. Or we like the same authors <laughs> and, the, and, and the same political pundits. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah. there could be aspects to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not like the sustaining power of, mm-hmm. of what friendship um, yeah. will embody, right? So I, I think th- those are elements of that. And just I, I think friendship is, for some people, friendship uh, the stereotype is friendship is always based on locality. Hmm. Right? Yeah, proximity, um, so, like yeah, how close yeah, someone right. is. Yep. Yeah, so it's like, oh, we lived in the same neighborhood. Can that be true? Yes. Can it not be true? Absolutely. We went to the same church. We mm-hmm. went to the same school, mm-hmm. right? And, and We so, lived on the yeah. same floor. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We're in even the same family. Right, like, even the same family, yeah. right? Yeah. And you can go deeper, right? Um, like our own affinity towards particular areas, like certain classes or mm-hmm. our own ethnic identity. And we have, we have a drawn... Class mm-hmm. to that. So, oh, only black people will be black, black, you know, have black friends or white yeah. people only have white friends. Right. <laughs> and it's like, no, actually, yeah. that that typically is not going to be the case, I think, in, in this world. If we're yeah. really going to press in to the richness of what diverse, mm-hmm. uh, diversity in friendships can also yeah. be. Uh, and I think also some of the crowning jewels of how a broadened community of friendship can can look like. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so I'm Italian-American. I've mentioned yeah. this probably on 15 podcasts. So I'm sorry for you guys who've heard me being <laughs> Italian now. But, man, if I had a friend group of just Italian-Americans, it'd probably be a lot of fun for about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. We'd eat a lot of carbs and have a lot of pasta. And then it gets so loud and so exhausting that I just want to leave. <laughs> so the idea of, like, a lot of people realize, like, I only want to hang out with people who come from the same background as me or act the same way or do the same way. That may seem appealing at first. And it may seem appealing, especially if you're in a place of uncomfortability or incongruence. But I feel like that's often what we idealize. I mean, I want I want someone who, like, shares all the same sports as me, like, has all the same interests, like, is the same political party, same religious denomination. And if I can get all that stuff, that's what makes a really good friend. Uh, but I don't I don't know if that's actually the case. Just like we said, that's that's possibly a part of the ballgame. Maybe that will be a part of it. Maybe that will right. be an entry right. into friendship. But friendship isn't necessarily built on those things, and it's not built deeply with those things. It's actually something else. And so we want to dive into that. Um, but before we get into maybe how that looks cross-culturally, how that looks from you in terms of just a male-to-male friendship, um, maybe we can just kind of go through your life um, and how has friendship impacted you, um, maybe starting with like middle school as the youngest, maybe yeah, middle school, yeah. high school, into your college years and into now your adult years. What, what have been the different stages of your life? How has friendship um, played into that? Yeah, so I think a lot of my, my family background plays into, I think, how I viewed friendship in these different seasons of life. You know, I came from a single-parent household. Uh, Dad was absent from my life um, and still still is. Uh, and, and that kind of, I think, gave me a certain lens towards friendship, and particularly, I would say, in, in terms of male friendship, because mm. I think um, I had a resistance towards friendship in the context of a male because the person that I pursued so much was so resistant, you know, mm-hmm. and so absent. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I, I personified manhood in some ways and in terms of friendship with like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if I want to like press into um, having uh, having a, another male friend. So, you know, mm-hmm. it'll it'll just be me. I'll ride, I'll yeah. ride solo. Yeah. Uh, so I, when I, I imagine middle school middle school for me was kind of like that kid that could swirl around in groups and <laughs> crack some jokes and you know he was like yeah. but there I, I wouldn't say i had friends mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. uh transition into high school i remember being in high school and really there's only two people that come to mind for mm-hmm. me in high school that i would possibly consider um 
you know, probably my, my long lasting friends in that season of life. Uh, and that was my friend Mancho and my other friend Alan. Hmm. And we kind of felt like we were in some ways kind of like these rugged loners that during <laughs> lunch, you know, during our yeah. breaks, we would be in, we'd be in the quad by ourselves, you know, just <laughs> a little bit of small talk, uh -huh. but it didn't extend beyond the bells, right? So mm -hmm. the bell rang and we were friends. The bell rang again at the end of the day and we went off to our own lives, yeah. right? And so yeah. I didn't live life with them in a way that kind of like embody mm -hmm. like this this continuum of friendship, you know. Mm. Now college, yeah. when I when when I came to college, it was interesting because I was immersed in I guess you could say like a living community of friendship, mm -hmm. right? And especially at Biola where I felt like every outlet was a social outlet. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think my stimuli was like, what in the world's going on? All these people are here. Um, and I like people, but I don't necessarily know how to make friends. Mm -hmm. um, but from that place, you know, living in the dorm, um, experiencing life with 50 other guys, right? <laughs> First time. And I'm talking about, hey, I'm an only child, have my own room, have my own possessions, right? So this is a whole new experience for me. That's where I think God started peeling back some of the layers in my life mm. um, and really opening opening my heart to, I, I think, a exploratory and adventurous experience of what friendship could be. Yeah. So maybe focusing in on your middle school years and your high school years. So going into college, what do you think are the main things you either subconsciously, implicitly, or even explicitly learned about what friendship is? So like when you when you got to the 50-person <laughs> dorm and like yeah. all these people are overwhelming you, what was it about that that maybe was very different? So what were you kind of internalizing about friendship before you got to college? Yeah, I think it I think before I got to college, I think I internalized friendship as something that was optional hmm. and um in some ways required more of me than I felt like I needed to give. And so I, I think in middle school and high school, I didn't feel a need for it. I felt a need to be friendly, but I didn't feel the need to be a friend. Hmm. Um, and, and I think maybe yeah. because I was, in, it, it comes back to my familial context. I was in such a tight knit space, right? I'm the only child mm -hmm. with one person in the house mm -hmm. and I depended on her to be in some ways my mm -hmm. social outlet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, all, that's all I saw embodied. Right. And I was also the youngest kid on both sides of my family. Got it. So, Got it. you know, yeah. I'm like the, I'm the baby, hopefully crown jewel, but I'm the baby, right? <laughs> You know, on both sides of the family. You know, and I have people 15 years older than me. I have people maybe two years older than me. Uh, but but I'm the youngest, right? So uh, for me, I almost felt like I had to, like, ride this experience in, in, in those years of my life solo. Um, hmm. And because I built somewhat of a system of, I think, autonomy during that time, hmm. I, I didn't feel like I needed it. Um, hmm. I actually didn't feel that it was a need. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that was kind of those years for yeah. me. Yeah. So in, in college, then did that kind of come to come to head? Then where it's like you had all this autonomy built in, yeah, yeah, and now you're forced to have friendship with these people because yep. that's what Christian universities do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's forced friendship. Yeah. Um, so was that kind of a, a big struggle for you? Maybe in the first few years of like balancing the reality of like it's okay to need people, it's okay to depend on people, and it's okay to be depended on and to be needed. Or what was that dynamic like for you? Yeah, I, I think it, it was it, it was interesting when I came to campus. I I noticed, particularly among guys here, you know, and this is the framework that I had mm -hmm. coming in. It's like y'all are a lot closer than I've ever experienced males being close to each other before, mm. and that throws me off. Yeah. Right? Um, and it maybe had some of the layers of like, look, I had not had a male in, in as close a proximity as maybe some of these men that I saw, right? So they're like, you know, hugging each other and, you know, patting each other on each other's shoulders and all this stuff. I'm like, nah, uh -uh. no, I don't do that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I, I realized, man, there's something about that that must be, uh, I, I guess, in some ways, conditioned on the fact of like, they are willing to dive into a level, and I use this word now that I never would have used before, a level of intimacy that I had never seen before, mm. right? Um, I didn't see it modeled for me, right? I, I probably hugged my dad. I, I can't remember, actually, how many mm -hmm. times I've hugged my dad in my mm -hmm. 31 years of life, um, probably less than five times in mm. my 31 years of life. Yeah. So that, in some ways, shaped me in terms of, like, physicality, right? Yeah. Uh, 
what I also noticed was, man, if I'm going to have to live in this space with 50 people, um, it would be very much jerkish of me not to be willing to understand who they are mm-hmm. and then also allow myself to be known. Um, and so that that really started the journey. It actually started a journey of even my own sense of um, ethnic identity and, and and my own faith journey process and how, in some ways, being one of the only people of color on my floor, um, how would I share authentically who I am um, while also knowing that that's a level of vulnerability that maybe I don't want to dive into. Yeah, I think that's yeah. that's big because I think we often, again, we think friendship is just this thing we all do like it's just natural it just happens but i don't think we realize some of the like internal themes and and, like internalization of some of the ideas of what friendship is i can think of in my own story around the age of 13 you know that's kind of a pivotal time for most people because it's you're after puberty or right around puberty it's identity development you're kind of figuring out what it means to either be a man or a woman and i had this one friend named damien um who literally one summer probably was at my house 20 to 30 nights of like the 60 or so nights of summer like he just <laughs> he lived with us like his family yeah. life was good like it wasn't anything wrong he just lived with us he just like the males yeah um he loved us um he'd leave you know zinger wrappers in our couch my dad always loves making jokes about that but anyway <laughs> um <laughs> gotta he'd help me destroy the house but there was something about that summer where we basically le- lived together it was the first time i think i had that kind of intimate friendship i had friends all growing up but I think he unlocked almost like a humor side of me, a, a more playful side. We used to we watched this movie, The Ringer, which now looking back, don't know how I feel about the movie, but we probably watched it about thirty times. And we watched weird movies together. We reenact the movies and we film videos. And so he kind of showed me that friendship could be this like this shared bonding of exploring each other's like humor and creativity. And then in high school, I had a friend named Mylan who we would come over and he just have like these deep intellectual talks and emotional talks about his family and my family and. That kind of unlocked, you know, the more intellectual side of me and the emotional side that showed me that friendship could also engage that part of me. But as I'm an adult now, what I've been realizing about both of those, those are both good. But what they taught me was that like with friendship, unless I was with them, because Mylan also stayed at my house probably 20 nights of 60 nights of a summer, a few summers later. What it taught me was that friendship, I needed to be with them in their face. Like I had to have the one-on-one face-to-face time, which is a really good thing. But that's something as an adult now, I'm having to learn like, what does it look like for me to be a friend? when I'm a state away. Right. What does it look like for me to be a friend when they can't sleep over at my house 20 nights out of the 30 nights of the month? Um, And that's just a small example of like, Mm -hmm. we internalize these narratives or ideas or themes about what friendship should be, or we have negative experiences that show us that guys can't hug, uh, like, because we didn't get that. Or, you know, you're not really friends if they're not sleeping over your house 20 nights a week. And so we have to work through those, Mm -hmm. I think, in order to have a healthy view of friendship. And so maybe from that, Daniel, what has it been like now as an adult um, working through all of that? I'm sure there's been a lot of angles of this, but what has it been like for you to kind of focus on having healthy friendships? Um, and we'll dive into the specifics of maybe cross-cultural and male-to-male, yeah, but yeah. generally, what has it been like for you as an adult at 31 years of age? What has it been like for you to pursue healthy friendships? Yeah, so I, I think one thing um, that I, I constantly remind myself of is to verbally state how I feel about my friends. Hmm. Um, I think I I remember the first time I said I love you to one of my friends Mm -hmm. was probably one of the most like ground shaking moments in my life. Right. Um, Because I I don't make that statement lightly. And it was very rare that I made that statement. And Mm -hmm. towards another man in my Mm -hmm. like formed Mm -hmm. view then of what masculinity was, I wouldn't dare say that. And then factored in with other things about I didn't receive that from my dad um, mm-hmm. and so I, I didn't offer it freely right so now I, I find myself all the time reminding myself and just clearly saying to to my friends you know I love you hmm. right um, hmm. and hearing that back right yeah. and and also like in one sense not like trying to soften it by saying I love you dude yeah or I love you yeah, man yeah, right yeah. because that that actually is a sign of my discomfort mm-hmm. right for me I'm adding that to make it make it seem a little bit more lighthearted than it yeah, is. Not but as intimate. It, yeah, right, not as right, right. So I, I constantly do that. The other thing that I, I think uh, I see my friends do, um, I think we do jointly together, is a willingness to give each other time 
to respond back to one another, right? Mm. And that means that we understand each other's spaces and places in life, right? Mm. So if my friend doesn't respond back in a week and he's married with a kid um, and he lives he lives in the Midwest and I live out here in Southern California, that is not a litmus test of our, mm. our endurance, right? Yeah. It's an understanding of place and time. And because I understand that actually shows the depth and breadth of our relationship, mm. right? That it's not, it's not, um, uh, we're not emotionally or relationally dissonant because we don't have the same uh, period of time and space, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that my depth of friendship demands of me uh, to see, oh, there are differences, right? Other than maybe what I desire, but mm-hmm. a difference that is, um, not the barrier towards us maintaining a friendship. Yeah. That aspect of saying I love you to a friend. So yeah. I have phone calls because I with guys that are like close friends of mine that I've been trying to work on. Like, okay, what does it look like to be in friendship? Yeah. Even though you're not the Mylon or Damien framework where you're with me all the time, but you live in a different state. And we normally end our calls telling each other we love each other. And there's still to this day, even though we've done it so many times now, there's still that uncomfortability in mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. of like, it's like, love you <laughs> like there's there's something in it where there's this fear i think of rejection um but also that it just wasn't modeled in us um like we're not taught especially as young men um that you can say that you love your friend without having to caveat it with like dude or bro or even like in more i think gross terms of like oh no homo though like right, right. there's some type of even homophobia in that and yeah. so yeah it makes us scared of intimacy with one another and and the only way guys really get that in Christian culture sometimes is then they get married, and then it's okay to express affection and love and mm-hmm. romance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had uh, Dr. Alan Ye and Dr. Ariana Malloy on, and they were talking about one of the biggest things they've realized is that since they've been married, they have full freedom to brag on one another. And there's something about in singleness or just in friendship where you don't always get that. Like It's not like it's okay for you to be like, oh, Daniel is like, the most creative guy I know. I love him so much. Like you don't often see that. It's becoming more and more popular with Instagram posts and like (laughs) different things like that. But there's an aspect of that. I'm like, I think that should be in every friendship, not just in marriage where it's like, we're, we're calling out the best. We're calling out the strengths. We're calling out the goodness. Um, And we don't have to be worried about, Oh, 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 just, you're pretty cool, dude. Like you're, you're a cool guy. (laughs) Like you can say what you mean. Um, And there's actually brings a depth to that. You know, I I think that's a wonderful point. Right. And then I think, I have seen that so modeled by some of my closest friends. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm a words of affirmation guy. Mm-hmm. And so when I get a card from one of my best friends, you know, uh, describing like, you know, what friendship looks like and how it's been embodied in our friendship for one another, man, that that is so powerful for me. And for me to reciprocate that, you know, so you, if you, if you look at my, my Facebook wall or you look at my Instagram posts, um, at times I'm acknowledging and recognizing and bragging mm-hmm. on my friends, right? I'm mm-hmm. a single man right now and, and I don't know what God has in store for me in terms mm-hmm. of that relationally. Uh, but in this moment, right, uh, inclusive of marriage too, even as I think about that, yep. I have the opportunity to celebrate the unique individuality mm. of my friends because their uniqueness in some way has directly impacted who God has uh, distinctively created me to be. Yeah. Right. Like he has brought them into my life and, and vice versa. I have been brought into their life. Right. And some way to help shape who we are. And mm-hmm. so as I get get the privilege, like an invitation to be a part of that, I get to celebrate that. I get yeah. to champion that. Yeah. Um, and and I, I try to find moments to do that um, whenever I can. Uh, and, and and do I still sometimes have a little bit of discomfort, right? <laughs> when I post a picture, it's yep. me and this guy, right? Yep. And then me and this guy. I'm like, yeah, yeah I do, right? And yeah. I have to wrestle with that. And, you know, and it's like, why do I have that discomfort? Because the societal norms say in some way that this is not masculine, right? Mm-hmm. This, this is mm-hmm. some form of femininity. And I'm like, you know what? I'm a man because God made me to be a man, right? Mm-hmm. Not because the societal norms has somehow positioned me yeah. to be a man in the context of my friendships. Yeah. Um, and so I want to celebrate them as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And I also want people to know the man that I am is due in part mm-hmm. providentially by God because of these friendships that mm-hmm. I have. It's so interesting when you talk about the, like, the masculinity and society norms of saying like you can't do that. And I agree with you. But then we have like these war movies or we have these stories in the Bible yeah. where one of the deepest moments is in like in a war movie when two best friends, like they just trained together, they did all this stuff together, and they go off to war and one of them passes away and they like 
acknowledge like I love you like we went through so much together you made me who I am I'm gonna live the rest of my life for you and that's like the deepest moment in a lot of movies but then it's still like when you're gonna post on even Instagram like just about like how awesome or creative or special this friend is we still have the discomfort so it's interesting where we we like prop up these like you know Hollywood good scenes of brotherhood but then when we're actually in real life-to-life situations we almost discourage it where it's almost like in Brotherhood, it's like the Sandlot. We want all these guys hanging out, like emotional experiences, awesome times. But then when it's us guys, it's like, oh, why are you being such a little sissy? Or why are you acting so emotional? Why are you being so sensitive? Why are you being so sentimental? And I'm guilty of this. I have a We have a friend in a, like my friend group from Biola who is the more sentimental type. And I'm one of the chief guys who are always like, oh, there he goes again, being all sentimental. And so I'm just as much a part of the problem. Um, but it's interesting that, like, those are the things we actually long for. Like, we long for those yeah. sentimental moments, but there's something in us still that, like, wants to say, no, no, no. Like, that didn't re- like that didn't really hit me deep. Like, that was a nice thing to say, yeah. but, like, I didn't yeah. feel that that deeply. Yep. Yeah. Um, but with all this, Daniel, what what has it been like maybe for you to navigate cross-cultural friendships? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it, we're adding a layer of, you have your childhood of experiences with friendship that impact how you relate to people now, but also you have your cultural background, your ethnic background, your racial background. Um, and the reality of America today is we're going to be having, hopefully having friendships across ethnic lines, across denominational lines, right, across right. even sexual identity lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what has it been like for you maybe in navigating those cross-cultural uh, friendships? Yeah, you know, I, I think living living in the context that I live live in and have lived in in Southern California, you will have to confront mm-hmm. uh, individuals that are different than you, right? Um, and if you if you're not confronting them, you must be like hiding because the reality is there's so much richness of diversity mm-hmm. here um, and complexity when it uh, when when it comes to that. And so for me, I think one, you know, just where I grew up, I was the two percent. Of mm-hmm. African Americans, right? My my mom and I would jokingly say, like, if our family left, the percentage in our city would go down <laughs> drastically, right? <laughs> so, like, everybody knows the Parhams. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know if they did, but I felt like they did because yeah. all I saw was the Parhams most of the time, yeah. right? And yeah. so that actually, in some ways, kind of forced me to to get into the space of saying, if I if I want to relate well to people, I'm going to have to cross those cultural lines, whether it's ethnic. Um, ethnic lines, even faith lines, right? Mm. To to get to know individuals like that. I was probably one of the few Christians in yeah. some of the spaces that yeah. I, that I, I was in in the, in the public school system. Coming into Biola, it was a little different too because the faith tradition, um, in terms of like, yes, we're all believers in Jesus Christ, but here I am, this black Pentecostal, <laughs> right? And I'm coming into this space where most people are not black and not Pentecostal, yeah. right? Uh, and so I had you these got like multiple a white lenses. Presbyterian who's just yeah. like, what is this guy yelling yeah, yeah, about? Yeah, right. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> well, what happens in your church? Yeah. Right. Um, and so one of the biggest things that helped me out was saying, look, I'm not going to be in defense of who I am. I'm going to be invitational in who I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say, like, look, you, you may not know me and I may not know you. But one way in which we can do this is I'm going to invite you into the spaces that have shaped me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that. You know, and, and, and I. I also was invited into their spaces, not without angst, right, uh, on both sides. Um, but as I did that, people started to see, like, the person that I like, very much what I shared earlier, was shaped by the very things that I'm unaware of. Hmm. And the same thing for me. And so we, I think when you're considering cross-cultural friendships, you one, you have to recognize there will be discomfort hmm. because you're you're going into an unknown Mm-hmm. The second thing you have to recognize is that discomfort is refining for you, hmm. right? Um, for you not to know something and be willing to dive into something that is unknown means that you have to trust someone else to show you the way. Yeah. Um, and in that, uh, I think you build this bond that says, like, I'm willing to say that your story helps me to understand the greater story yeah. of what life is. And then I think that's where the beauty of cross-cultural friendships come into play, right? Where, like... There's only so much I can know in one facet, one space, one class, one yeah. ethnicity, right? It's not to say that there, that that inherently is problematic, but in one sense, right, when you have an open door invitation to know someone other than you uh, yeah. in a way that's unifying, right, take advantage of that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and 
with that, you have to be willing to press in to that that's not just superficial, right? Yeah. So yeah, we're Christians. Great, great. Yeah. But what does it mean to be a Christian as an African-American male? What does mm. it mean to be a Christian um, who deals with fatherlessness? What yeah. does it mean to be a Christian who um, is struggling with depression and anxiety, right? Uh, all these things are, that are becoming in some ways like cultural norms that maybe you have not experienced before, but you, you have to be willing to journey alongside. And I would say come into the deepest depths of where people are, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a beauty in that, that, yeah. that I've appreciated. I probably, if you looked at my core friends, like um, in some ways, none of us come from this, the same experiences. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. And what really has forged us together is that um, we, we, see our, we see our kingdom lens as the mindset in yeah. which joins us together right? yeah. yeah and i and i we get why people don't pursue cross-cultural friendships or oh, cross-ethnic totally. friendships it's like i mean in a silly example i can think of even right now it's like so i don't know how to ice skate like i, I don't know how to ice yeah. skate at all <laughs> um and i've tried now about four times i went on a date with a girl once um and it was ice skating was what she decided to do because she asked me on the date um which kudos to her for asking me on the date um but it was like I just was on the side of the rink the whole time, and I just I dreaded going on that date. Like I really wanted to like hang out with her and get to know her, but like man, I just did not want to go ice skating. Um, and so what I end up doing is instead of like ice skating, because that's gonna mean she's gonna have to teach me how to ice skate. I'm gonna have to depend on her. I'm not the expert. I don't know how to do this. I can't even learn it myself if I tried. I have to be fully dependent on her. Yeah. And that's like a really yeah. that's a honoring a weakness. It's like me saying I don't yeah. know how to do this. This is me looking like an idiot, even looking like a fool, trying right. something and messing up. And so what I ended up doing on the date was I just found another guy who didn't know how to ice skate. <laughs> and we just started holding the side and talked the whole time. It's cool. I actually got to talk about Jesus. And, and now you're the greatest friends, right? <laughs> that's right. I mean, yeah, we follow each other on Instagram. Yeah. Um, as a complete stranger. But we were yeah. both like, you don't know how to ice skate either? He's like, yeah. <laughs> like, chill. Um, but in the same way, it's like, I mean, in some ways, that's just kind of a silly and not as concrete of an example. But we're so scared of having to depend fully on someone. Um, to show us a way, to acknowledge weakness, to be willing to mess up and make a mistake. And we're often not willing to do that because we don't see the benefit. Like how can, you know, going ice skating really benefit my life? Um, but the reality is if you like shut off this whole even potential for you to learn this new thing, to understand a new aspect of yourself, to understand that I have terrible coordination, which I'd never learn um, without going ice skating, then we're missing out on an aspect of being human. Um, right. And that's why I think cross-cultural friendships are so important It's because yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, you might be a novice. Yeah, you might have to completely depend on the other person. But they're going to add so many more angles and aspects to yourself. They're going to like show you new ways of being creative, new ways of experiencing diversity, new ways of experiencing different personality traits, showing you just the beauty of what is humanity, that we are all different, um, that we all have some shared sameness, but we're all different and there's different expressions and different ways of doing things and different foods and cultures and textures and so many different things. Um, it burdens me that the churches nowadays, for the most part, I feel like are pretty homogenous. Um, they're pretty a one ethnic group, a one cultural group, a one racial group. Um, and if they are, you know, multi-ethnic, it's normally still one dominant culture mm -hmm. with just mm -hmm. other quote unquote ethnicities within that culture mm -hmm. kind of assimilating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we can even move to talking about the church a little bit, Daniel, of how have you maybe seen the church do friendship well? Um, and how have you seen it kind of go wrong? Yeah, I think in terms of the church, right, so sometimes we we want to uh, systematize friendship, right? So we'll generate friendship through ministry programs that we mm -hmm. have, right? And the reality is just because you get a group of people together does not necessarily mean that they're going to forge some type of friendship, right? Yeah. And so sometimes I think we, we kind of just rely on that as a place um, where friends will, you know, friends will just automatically build. Um, but I think actually the reality of uh, friendship for the church um, is one where one is able to be willing to know someone's soul. Um, and in that space, right, I think um, how our discipleship is run in, in so many churches is um, somewhat lacking, right? Because mm -hmm. we, we, we're more concerned about us collectively coming together versus collectively knowing each other. Hmm. Right? And when we come together to know one another as we know God, right, in that space, there is opportunity, ripe opportunity to develop friendships, right? You know, I, I remember going to church and thinking, like, 
and I've been to my church for 19 years. Um, I should probably have better friendships with these people than anyone else, mm-hmm. any other group, right? Because mm-hmm. I've not, I have not been in a longer standing area mm-hmm. or institution mm-hmm. other than my local church. Mm-hmm. But what I've realized is simply because we assemble together does not necessarily mean that we are relationally tied yeah. to one another yeah. in a way that's transformative that leads to friendship, right? Mm-hmm. So I think churches have to one say like, look, Jesus called his disciples friends. Hmm. We got to examine that for a minute, right? Mm-hmm. And he says so much to the point that you're willing to lay down your life for someone. And I usually don't want to lay down my life for someone <laughs> that I have no understanding yeah. of, right? Yeah. Um, so I think the church has to you know, drive into that point. If Jesus is willing to lay down his life for someone, and he does lay down his life, he lays down his life with full knowledge of who that person yeah. is, yeah. right? With their messiness and with their quote-unquote goodness. Mm-hmm. And so when we come together, like, do we know each other's messiness? Mm-hmm. Do we know each other's goodness? Are we willing to get such into a depth of understanding of one another, which will require more than just Sunday morning at 11 a.m., mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And Bible study when we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're being informed, um, but we're not necessarily shaping one another's life's, you know, life's journey. Um, so I think that's an area where the church can, can grow. Yeah. Uh, and I think ways in which the church does that well um are in some some aspects of discipleship right this one-on-one discipleship mm-hmm. this kind of this paul timothy context where i think there has to be a relational end that's there but that doesn't necessarily forge into friendship right yeah. um, a mentor mentee you know, discipler dis- disciple um, does not necessarily translate to friendship sometimes it just translates to uh, information dumping, right? Mm, <laughs> yeah, you know, yep. tools of wisdom. Yeah. Um, but you have to press even further into that. So mm-hmm. I think coming back to this understanding one another's souls, which demands that you'll see the darkest parts of me mm. as well as the most heartfelt parts of me. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, I've said this before in the podcast, but I'm a big fan of the house church kind of movement yeah, and yeah. the house church reality. And that's where I hope to spend most of the rest of my life in because that's just what feels right for me, what mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What seems like a good biblical way of doing it, but the big church is not wrong either, and the medium size and the small church and like a building style church. So for those who are maybe not in a house church type movement, not that the house church is perfect, but they're pretty good at friendship because that's the model. <laughs> um, like that's the whole whole ball game. But they miss out on a lot of other things. Maybe um, how would you say someone who's in like a mid size, maybe even a mega church, maybe even a small church, but it's they meet on buildings um, on Sunday mornings. How do you think the church can maybe be better at fostering friendship? Um, in practical ways. I think creating a culture of hospitality. Hmm. Right. Um, you don't have to be hospitable by sitting in the same pew next to each other. That doesn't right. demand of you. Well, during the 30-second greeting period right. between worship and the <laughs> where, sermon. Where, depend on your depend on your personality type. Like, you are cringing yeah. or, or you are the one that's annoying everyone. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm an extrovert, and I, I look for the quickest chance to just say hi and sit oh, down. Me too. Yeah. Me too. You know, so I think that, yeah, right, we, we try to create spaces like that. But I think from an individual standpoint, right, you create a culture of hospitality that says, like, hey, I'm not just going to sit next to you uh, for 15 years in 11 a.m. service and worship alongside you and not know where you live and not know your kids' names hmm. and not ever invited you to my home or yeah. invited you into a space that's familiar for me outside of the four walls that we consider the physical church, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think generating a culture of hospitality. So like my friends are the ones that I eat with. Mm-hmm. My friends are the ones mm-hmm. that I road trip with, right? Mm-hmm. My friends are the ones that like, if I have a little gaffe, they're, they're, they're okay, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to throw them off. But in a church context, if I said something outside of a relational mm-hmm. relational depth, you'd be like, well, how dare you, right? Because yeah. you've only seen one layer mm-hmm. of what embodies who I am as a person, right? And when you dive into friendship, you you have to have this level of vulnerability yeah. to really have an enduring friendship to say like, hey, these are all the layers, this is all the mess, and I still invite you into my space. Yeah, I feel like we often settle for that first layer of someone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even... One of the scariest aspects of hosting this podcast is just the reality of I might say something and someone can take it a certain way. And since they don't know me as a whole person, yep. um, they're going to either make a judgment or a presumption about the podcast or take something hurtful that I didn't mean is hurtful. And so it's really hard. Um, but there's an aspect of we do that in our churches where it's just, we're only seeing for the first layer what their appearance looks like on Sunday morning, what they look like on Sunday morning. And that gets into hospitality where 
again, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure the biblical narrative and how they describe hospitality is not just you having your best friends over for some pizza and drinks. Hospitality is given to the stranger. Mm-hmm. It's given to the, the stranger who's among you. Absolutely. So hospitality then is not just you saying, well, I do hospitality. I have my buddies over every Thursday night and I host them at my house mm-hmm. and we have food and I give them food. And it's like, that is a, an aspect of hospitality, but true hospitality is finding the, the stranger at your church that you've never talked to, yep. you've never met. They might even look weird or yeah. different or yeah. scary. Yeah. Um, and it's inviting them over for yeah. food and drinks and conversation. Um, but I think we often, we've settled for hospitality as just, oh, well, I have my best friends over every week. So isn't that what the biblical command is? Aren't I doing it? Yeah. But that's not, I don't yeah. think that's a command if you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so I think that's helpful because the house church, it's hospitality from the start. If you come to the house church as a stranger or as a best friend, that's all it is. It's just hospitality. Right. Um, and they're missing out on a lot of the other things of service and, and great worship and even potential for awesome teaching. Um, but that's the one thing they get right, I think, is, I mean, amongst other things, is hospitality. Because no matter who you are, if you're wanting to like see about this way, this people, this group of people, you have to enter their home. And you have to be a part of their messiness. Mm-hmm. Like when they're trying to get gather their kids around to get them quiet so they can listen to someone teaching or someone talking, you're gonna see maybe their little their little snap at their kid. You're gonna see the messiness of their backyard. You're gonna see the ugliness of the bathroom. Everyone knows when someone goes and takes a number two because everyone can smell it. There's a messiness <laughs> aspect to it that we just miss in the big church because everything's so clean and nice yeah. and put together. Uh, yeah. But I think that's something we really need in the church. Right. Um, it's something we're missing for sure. Yeah. Um, one, one question we talked about that we wanted to hit before we kind of get into some of the hope questions um, is how do you kind of think about and how do you process kind of friendships in terms of termination? Um, like are all friendships supposed to last forever? Obviously, we know the ones from middle school and high school won't and maybe even some from college. But I feel like there's this idea that like your best friends, once you make them for the one to three year period of you're not best friends for the rest of your life, there's some like there's a failure, there's a falling out. There's something negative, um, but is it possible to like have friendships for a season, and that to be a good thing? Or, and I'm kind of answering the question as I go, um, but kind of let's let's flesh out what is what is transitioning of friendships look like, um, and maybe what does it look like for you? Are you still best friends with every best friend you had in college, um, or has it looked different? And what has that been like for you to process that? Yeah, I, I think uh, there are moments where God transformatively uses a season of time to develop two individuals in this space of friendship right and yeah it might be along the lines of like hey you're in this class together for a whole semester and you all in some ways are interdependent you know Mm -hmm. in in the success of of your academic journey in this class and you forge this commonality Uh, and at the end of that class like you still revel in the fact that you had this great experience Mm -hmm. uh, but it was within the bounds of that class Mm -hmm. that's okay i don't think any different of this individual simply because Mm -hmm. this season of life has changed and actually i look towards that 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 space and time with a level of fondness to say like god enriched my life but for a season Mm -hmm. in this space and to really think like any gift of relationship is seasonal in this mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. right? Um, one of us will leave, <laughs> whether it is physically or through other transitions. And so I think you hold that intention and say, like, long-lasting friendships, even those long-lasting friendships, in some ways have a termination, right? Yeah. And so you steward them well, um, whether it's six months or, like, mm-hmm. you know, my best friend, like, we've been friends almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of my friends, we've been friends for almost 10 years. And then there have been spaces where people have been grafted in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they've been grafted in uh, from a seasonal experience. And now they're a part of this, like, long narrative, it mm-hmm. seems like, because mm-hmm. they've known some of the people from the other seasons yeah. of life, right? Yeah. So I think it's appropriate. I think I don't think you have to feel burdened uh, by the fact that you have – uh, friends but for a season it also reminds us that we are um, finite in our in our uh, ability to understand so many people in so many given time and so many mm-hmm. given times mm-hmm. and seasons of our lives and the capacity right i think this is where the social media experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gives us a falsity of like Oh, I got to know all these people mm-hmm. all the time, know all their experience, yep. spend all this time. Yep. And like, you can't, you are not God. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some places in life that are just but for a moment. 
and they're no less valuable because they were for a moment. Yeah. And then God uses, um, you know, amazing experiences of years and years of of, of friendship um, that, in one sense, God providentially uses to constantly sanctify yeah. you and shape your life. So yeah. neither one is bad. Now, yeah. I would say, now, if all your friendships are seasonal, yeah. um, then maybe you need to examine that yeah. and, 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 get, and, and discern, like, is it seasonal because it was a... Uh, a bound moment mm-hmm. or is there a developmental aspect of mm-hmm. your own self um, mm-hmm. in terms of friendships that needs to occur yeah that aspect of social media is big because i think we often think like the perils of social media is internet addiction comparison mm-hmm. even like pornography and different things yeah. yeah but even that that burden of like i think of instagram and Instagram is basically, I need to, like, my 800 people I follow, I need to know everything about them. I know I pretty much know everything they're doing from week to week, the big things. And it almost creates this burden in me of, like, man, I need to keep track of all these people. And so actually something I did recently, um, and I so don't go and check if you're on my followers list, but I, I went and basically muted a bunch of people that just I'm not close to. I'm not going to unfollow them because people have the unfollow app and they'll know if I unfollow them and that will kind of sever the friendship because that's how, you know, millennial. you told me that because I didn't know there was yeah. an unfollow app. Uh, I think I've only unfollowed two people. In that's the past good. Year. There, is a, there is an unfollow app and uh, I have been called out for unfollowing oh, someone goodness. before. So I don't do that anymore. Um because I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to sever the friendship. Just right. how I'm trying to use Instagram is in a different way than how you are using it. Right. I'm trying right. to just follow actually who I want to follow and what I have the capacity to follow. Um, and so there's even in like how we think about social media, it's like, man, do you have too many people on your Facebook friends list that are showing up on your feed? And even with the algorithms, you're only seeing a certain portion of them as well. Do you have any pe- too many people you're following on Instagram? Who are you following on Instagram? Are you following people that are like these Instagram model Pinterest stars that are showing you this beautiful life that you're constantly having to be like, not only am I have to follow all these people's lives, but I have to be just as good as those lives. And I think there's an aspect of that that's derailing our friendship because I'm thinking, yeah, this is really good what I have in face-to-face and in person, but I also have to keep tabs on the 800 people I'm following on Instagram. So I literally, I probably have 100 people, I think, that show up in my feed now. Um, and it's been so nice because it's like, when you see a post come up, it's not this burden of like, oh, I forgot they existed. Man, I feel like a terrible person. I should have known more about them. We're just like, oh, that's my good friend from back home, or that's my good friend from here, or that's my good friend from here, and it's just mm-hmm. my friends, mm-hmm. um, even though I'm still following a ton of people <laughs> because of the unfollow app. Um, but, Daniel, maybe someone who's listening to this right now who's struggling with friendships, like they have some good friendships, they've had some good seasonal friendships, maybe not anything long-lasting, and they're really struggling to make it work um, and, and kind of feel the richness that friendship can provide, what would be maybe the next steps um, you would kind of offer them, and how do they pursue friendship um, and how do they themselves, in a sense, kind of identify their patterns better to know how they're interacting with their friends? Yeah. I think one question you want to ask yourself, I think, is why do I want to be a friend? Hmm. And why do I sense that I need a friend? Hmm. Right? Because I think it starts to, it, it gives you the ability to assess, like, what do I bring into a friendship? Um, and what do I receive from a friendship? Right? Sometimes I think we just want proximity, um, but that not that's not necessarily conducive to what what we desire in terms of being a friend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think also to ask yourself, like, I think there are some bases. Like, are there some commonalities that I can can dive into with 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 a group of people or with an individual? Um, but then also, what are things that I can embrace that are wholesome? Um, that maybe I, I maybe I'm fearful of diving into because it's yeah. unknown to me, but to say like I'm willing to dive into this because that that ability to know a person is worth the risk of diving into something that I don't know. Yeah. Um. So even even doing that, I think for seasonal friendships or these moments where it's felt like a friendship has been seasonal, um, have a willingness to extend yourself out towards that friend again. Mm-hmm. Right. It's gonna feel awkward. You know, there, there, mm-hmm. are, there are moments where you you might feel like well this person might think that I, I I'm only seeking after something for my sole benefit because I haven't heard from them in six yeah. years right yeah um, you know, you'll have to deal with that you'll mm-hmm. have to you'll have to combat that that fear of that yeah. or the fear uh, of even being needy like exactly oh, I'm right. gonna come off as like oh I need to yeah. hang out with you I need to yeah, talk yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I think I, I think you set healthy expectations of of how you will relate to one another. You know, I think there, uh, there are times where you will have to understand someone's place in life. 
Um, and because you understand that, you give them the grace, quote unquote, grace mm-hmm. to respond in the in the space that they're able to. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think some people are afraid. Like, yeah, like you said, like, um, man, you know, uh, I haven't connected with them in a week. Uh, what mm-hmm. do they think about me? Or mm-hmm. I haven't connected with them in a number of years. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think really to put that aside and say, like, what is it about that person that makes me want to connect with them? Yeah. And press into that. Right. Yeah. And, and and in one sense, you can't be responsible for how they're going to respond, but mm-hmm. you can be responsible how you're going to invite yourself back into their lives yeah. or invite them into your life. Yeah. Yeah. I have this friend named Evan. Um, we were good friends, like eighth grade year of middle school. Uh, he moved away from our hometown and he'd come back to visit. And so we'd hang out every summer. He'd come back to visit. And then we both went off to college and we lost touch for probably about three years. Um, and we kind of kept tabs on Instagram and different things. But then this game, which I'm sure you've heard of, and everyone listening has probably heard of, it's called Fortnite, came yeah, out. Yeah. Um, and we both were big Halo players back in the day, video games. And so he saw, like I posted a video of me winning or something, something nerdy. Um, but he saw that I was playing. And so he like messaged me and said, hey, do you play? And I'm like, yeah. yeah. And he's like, so then we connected over Xbox and started playing together. Um, and there was this aspect that like both of us, I'm sure felt a little uncomfortable, like, Oh, we haven't talked in a while. Why is that? How we drifted apart? Are we not really friends anymore? Um, but slowly we got over that. And now he's like one of my best friends. Like, uh, I visited him twice in the last year, like, and literally just because we both are willing to take, we use the common interests. Like it's just a typical, like, Oh, I read in the news. I saw this, like, there's things that you can use to say like, Oh, maybe I can use this to reconnect with that person. Um, and I think we're, it's ultimately we're scared of rejection. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And we're scared yeah. of termination. Yeah. Like we're scared that this might be, you know, a seasonal thing. And so we don't even enter into the seasonal friendship, even though that seasonal friendship could benefit us. I think of uh, the story of Paul and John Mark, mm-hmm. where I've used this story as a probably a cop out, honestly, spiritually with some friends. Uh, but if you don't know the story of Paul and John Mark, they went on this missionary journey together. And about halfway through, John Mark went home because he just couldn't handle it. We don't really know the full story. He just didn't want to be there anymore. <clears throat> so when they go on the second missionary journey, um, and Paul's like thinking of who to take. He does not want to bring John Mark, but his mm-hmm. friend, I think it was Barnabas, um, said, no, we need to bring John Mark. And so eventually they end up just splitting. Cause Paul says, I cannot hang out with this guy basically. Yep. Yep. Um, and later on in Paul's life, he writes a letter where he commends John Mark for the work he's done. And so there's even an aspect of like seasonally that was good for Paul and John Mark to be friends. Something happened and they needed to split. But even later on, we can still reflect and say that was still good. And I still highly respect them just because there's an issue, a disagreement, a flaw, an incident where you have to separate a friendship or you can't become friends for a while. It doesn't mean that either is better or worse than the other. It just means that's just life. Um, And sometimes it's just how it goes. And so I think that's been encouraging for me in times where I've had to like kind of say goodbye to friends because it was more of just realizing this is a seasonal thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Or of times we had a sharp disagreement where it's just like, oh. We just have to agree to disagree on this. We probably can't be friends because of this, but I'm still like, in a sense, cheering you on from afar because my fidelity to Jesus and your fidelity to Jesus makes us passionate encouragers of one another, even if we're like, we're not going to do this ministry and life thing together, yeah. Yeah. but we can respect what yeah. we're going to do separately for the kingdom. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And so I guess in all of that, what would be your hope for the church and friendship moving forward? As we move into the next decade here, um, in 2020, and actually when this episode release, it will be 2020. Um, what would be your hope for the next 10 years uh, for the church and friendship and how it would look um, in the church going forward? Yeah, I, I would hope that the church would embody a level of friendship that uh, is really a giving away of oneself to a, to another person, right? This is kind of like, I think, the Jesus example that not literally, and we may not literally give our physical lives, but mm-hmm. we're, we're willing to compromise that which it seems normative for us for the sake of almost enveloping a larger understanding of what friendship is, right? Hmm. And because of that, um, the world looks at us with a unique sense of like, why would you be willing to dive into something that is not of commonality? Um, or press beyond commonality. Uh, and then also, I think, uh, f- having a friendship that dives into an understanding, as I mentioned before, of someone's soul, which means hmm. you see the darkest elements of them, yeah. and yet you still draw close. Yeah. Right? Um, 
and people would be like, why would you hang with this person? <laughs> mm-hmm. Why would you mm-hmm. be near this person? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, because you're not that way. And, yeah. and, and the reality is, yeah, maybe I am not that way. Um, but God has providentially brought us together for the sake of our own restoration, right? So mm. there's a goodness in that person, Lord willing, um, mm-hmm. even in the depths of their despair and their darkness that God is redeeming, that is going to benefit me. And then hopefully um, in, in ways that I will benefit them by drawing close to them, right? Yeah. So Jesus draws even close to his enemies. Hmm. And so if Jesus is able to do that, how much yeah. more as a church are we able to embody that, right? Yeah. To be friendly and not just friendly. Jesus calls us to be friendly towards enemies. He calls us to be loving mm-hmm. towards our enemies, right? Mm-hmm. And so if I can love a person um, who I do have commonality with, man, how much more do I even need to love a person who I seem so radically different yeah. from, right? And so I think if the church is continually showing these examples uh of that uh of that adaptability um and i would say like more elasticity right to be able mm-hmm. to be like oh, i'm being stretched uh mm-hmm. in in ways that maybe i necessarily don't feel comfortable doing um but god actually is enlarging my heart and my mind and giving me the capacity to sit alongside to live life with those who seemingly, as you mentioned, would be strangers yeah. to me apart from the working grace of God in my life. Yeah. Um, and I think society needs to look at that and say, like, there's something odd and weird about that. And I want to know more. Yeah. And the church can be a light for them. Yeah. I was reading this book called Fight by Preston Sprinkle recently. Yeah. And it, the whole premise of the book is basically kind of recapturing the idea of enemy love. Um, he, yeah. he basically ends up arguing for nonviolence in terms of Christianity. But his main premise of the book is kind of trying to recapture what enemy love looks like in Christianity. And he, he talks about before 300 AD, um, which is really before Constantine kind of made Christianity the religion of Rome, um, the most commonly quoted command of Scripture by the early church fathers, what the Christians were known for, was Matthew 5.44. It was their John 3.16. So Matthew 5.44 says, love your enemy, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there's something in that, which I think ties to friendship that you just brought up, that as the church, I'd hope in the next 10 years <clears throat> that people would be so captivated by how we do friendship and not only how we do friendship amongst the same colored people, amongst the same cultural people, but across cultural lines, but also to enemies and how we extend the, the hand of friendship and the hand of love to enemies. If the church was known as a place like that, this almost this radical spectacle of this coming together of different people who shouldn't like each other, who should hate each other, but yet they're they're there and they're together. It's almost, I mean, this is a silly example, but Kanye was just at Joel Olstein's church um, last Sunday. And regardless of you about Kanye or Joel, Joel Olstein, I would have loved to be there just because the cultural spectacle of Kanye West and Joel Olstein mm-hmm. coming from two different entirely places mm-hmm. um, that seemingly like they shouldn't like each other and the two cultures that probably came to see them and all the diversity and the, the multifaceted reality, I would have showed up. So what if our churches were places like that? It doesn't have to be this stage spectacle, but this place where it's like, hey, I know this place we can go to, almost like a, it's even like a nightclub kind of feel. Not that we have to do it at night and it has to be a nightclub, but man, I know this place where we can go to where there'll be uh, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, European-Americans, Italian-Americans, and people who are Republican, Democrats, people who love the New England Patriots and people who love everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all these people who are coming together from different walks of life who should hate each other, who shouldn't like each other, and they're eating meals together, and they're offering the hand of hospitality and the hand of friendship. And that is the culmination of the new testament in a sense it's when everyone's at the throne in the new creation new heavens people from all races all tribes all tongues coming together in this beautiful friendship oneness with god the father and jesus the son and the holy spirit and so that's why it's to now if if you're today why are we modeling our churches after a almost a segregated model even if it's not racially segregated culturally segregated um, when we could be experiencing a taste of that new creation feel with enemies together, with people who hate each other together, with people who disagreed theologically together, um, all under the umbrella of Jesus. Um, and I think that's the Christian vision for friendship, even though we've often settled for just like a men's retreat where we had some burgers <laughs> and yeah. talked about masculinity and called it a day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, and that's, that's what I hope um, for the church moving forward. 
But yeah, Daniel, this has been sweet. Um, Thank you. We cover a lot of ground here, and I know a lot of people are going to be really blessed by just your insight. Because um, friendship is just one of the topics that we all want, <laughs> but we all don't know how to talk about because it's just so common. Like we all want friendship. We all have friendship to some capacity. But I feel like most people I talk to are always longing for more in their friendships. I mean, I'm still longing for more in my friendships. I'm sure you're still longing for more. And that might be a longing that never gets fully fulfilled until Jesus um, comes and makes us one. But it's something I think with some of the tools we laid out that people can maybe start to experience now. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. And as always, if you have enjoyed what you have heard today or enjoyed what this podcast is doing and what is it about, it would help us out greatly if you could leave us a review and if you could subscribe to the podcast. This helps us reach other people and this helps us fulfill what this podcast is ultimately trying to do, which is bring hope to those who are trapped, those who are struggling, and those who are wondering what to do with sexuality. We hope that Daniel's words today encouraged you in your friendship made you feel whole in your pursuit of deep, healthy relationships, and ultimately gave you hope for the the intimacy you can have through friendship. With all these things, may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.